0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. We have, honestly, this is like a super special episode. We have a fantastic (laughs) interview at the end of it. You can hear the giggles because everyone knows how special it is. We we have a really extra special. Hi, Joe. I'm sorry. I just rewrote it. I can't help, but I'm very excited. Um, We have Julia Borson at the end of the episode talking about her fantastic new book called When Women Lead. It's a book about women in leadership. And we talk about what it takes to be a woman leader, um, the pitfalls, the um, exciting things that and women have to deal with in the workplace, as we all know. And who better to talk about women who lead and do extraordinary things than, than two of our incredible colleagues. Uh, we have a longtime time Hive reporter, our national political reporter, Abby Tracy here, back to talk about the midterms and an exciting new addition. Joe, do you want to break the news for our listeners?
1: Well, you're talking about women leading and people who are special, and we have a very special new correspondent at Vanity Fair magazine. Her name is Molly Jongfast, and she is here with us presently on Inside the Hive, where she belongs. Hello, Molly. Welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. So much fun. Abby, yeah, Molly, I'm excited.
0: <laughs> come on. This is like truly an all-star panel and no better week for it because we are within a week of the midterm elections and you two are two of the people who I feel like I want to hear from most as we stare down the end of the world. Molly, as our newest member, let me take your temperature about how you're feeling <laughs> as we head into these last couple of days. What what are you looking at? What are you expecting? What are we to face uh, on, on that fateful day in November?
2: You know, I vacillate between being convinced that all the. I mean, the fundamental problem that I have is that I don't trust any polls, right? Mm-hmm. I don't trust partisan polls. I don't trust so called nonpartisan polls. I, I mean, I just know I have a home phone number somewhere. But it doesn't ring. <laughs> sure. So I assume that these polling, you know, the polling methodology is just completely flawed. So I feel like the sort of information that a lot of us are going on is sort of vibes more than anything else. Right. It's vibes that the current president isn't that popular and that inflation is high. But I don't have a sense of really how people will vote. And these early turnout numbers are looking good for Democrats. So in a week, we could all be very surprised, or we could all see exactly what we're expecting. Again, it's this cliche. It's going to come around to turn out, I think.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. Abby, what what vibes are you picking up on? Because I feel like vibes is like the most scientific way to go into a consequential
1: National vibology and- correspondence. Yeah, exactly. yes, yes,
0: that's my title. Uh, I'm
3: I'm with Molly a little bit on it. Some days I'm terrified by the polls. Other days I'm like, how can I even believe polls? I do think a lot of what I've been kind of paying attention to this cycle in terms of the polls themselves are just trends, not, you know, not individual polls, not that. Just trying to see if there are, like, patterns, changes, things of that nature. But that said, I don't think especially right now that there is going to be any kind of poll that can capture just the clusterfuck that is (laughs) happening everywhere. Sorry to swear. We might need to bleep that out. Um, Keep it in. We're going to unbleep it. I just, I, you know... I think during the Trump era, you constantly heard this word, unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. But I do sort of feel as though there are things happening right now that are genuinely unprecedented. You look at the fall of Roe. You look at, you know, what happened with January 6th. I don't know how much that's still lingering. And then you have all these other kind of traditional markers that people base You know, presidential elections, midterm elections, on you know, economy, inflation, et cetera. So I just don't know that there's a real scientific way to get a sense of like the bag of goods that everybody's dealing with. If that makes any sense,
1: Mm -hmm. I I will say that there is an article in the uh, on Politico today that talks about the polling and about how there's very few independent polls out there, and that a lot of them had been partisan polls. And surmising or speculating that. You know, a lot of conservative polls have been coming out, conservative leaning polls, in order to create a momentum, to create a right. perception that there is momentum and to depress Democratic turnout. I mean, they don't say we know this for a fact, but it's like something that you can perceive just out there in the world. And the other thing to remember is like, you know, nobody knows nothing. Nobody mm-hmm. knows what's going to happen. And we've seen that. We saw it in 2016. We've seen it in other elections where there's a shock reverse of what the polls said and what people expected in, in this case. But what we can say And I'll repeat something that James Carville said here a couple episodes back, which is that under normal circumstances, it would be very clear that the Republicans were going to crush the Democrats all over the place because of the economy, because of the crime situation and them banging on that. But it hasn't been that way. And the fact that Democrats are where they are shows that the electorate is looking for a reason not to pull the lever for Republicans, you know. And some of these candidates will give them that reason and others are going to be, you know – Facing uh, longer odds because of their own problems, you know. From state to state, you can look at it. I mean, whether Fetterman's going to be, you know, actually hurt from his last debate, that could that could be the game changer. We don't know, but mm-hmm.
2: but not to play devil's advocate here, but there are some candidates who are truly just appalling. And still polling really well. I mean, Herschel Walker yeah. has a se- – there's mm-hmm. a second woman today who came out to say that she also <laughs> had – he had, you know, pushed her to have an abortion. So, I mean, I do think – I think that's true. But I also do think some of these candidates are doing way better than they should.
3: I guess thinking like back to that kind of point around trends or patterns I'm seeing too, one interesting thing is, you know, there's been such a conversation around, oh, does Roe v. Wade – matter? You know, will it just be the economy and all that? I do think one interesting thing that has kind of anecdotally come up in my reporting a lot over the last couple of days is you're seeing Republicans tweak their messaging on mm. abortion. Like, you know, you had a handful of candidates in Texas who are like, you know, saying, I would support a revision to SB 8 that would include exceptions for rape and incest. You're seeing, you know, I'm working on a piece today about abortion in Nebraska, and you're seeing those candidates change. Like, they're kind of trying to, like, walk a little bit away from being so pro-life, being so extreme on these bans and, you know, this draconian legislation. And it does make you wonder, okay, what are they seeing? You know, I talk to, there's that, I'll talk to, you know, a Democratic candidate, and they're always like... Yeah, I see, you know, moderate Republican women come up to me every place I go and they're bringing this up as an issue. My question is sort of what's Mm. the flip of that? Like, what are moderate Republicans hearing from people on that issue? Because I do think what polls are they looking at? What are they seeing in their internals? What are they seeing on the campaign trail? But that has been, again, it's anecdotal, but something that I've picked up on over the last couple weeks of reporting. So I think it is, I don't know, I think that issue might be more salient than, you know, pundits are are leading us to believe, possibly.
0: It's so interesting, Abby, that's such a helpful observation why we love having you here. It's so... um Granular and so specific, and really, I feel like gives you a window into uh, how people are thinking. And obviously, with the exception of someone like a Herschel Walker, generally these politicians are incredibly disciplined, and everything out of their mouth is tested and pulled within an inch of its life. And um, that's why people don't really trust politicians because everything they're saying is rehearsed and canned and practiced and and messaged within an inch of its life. So. I think the conventional wisdom has been over the last couple of months is that Dobbs happened too soon, that it was too far away that voters wouldn't remember. But I think my counter to that, and Abby, what you're saying supports that, is this is an issue that women will face every day of their lives, that every month of their life they will have a reminder of the fact that they are not in control of their own body. And if they want access to birth control, perhaps they won't have it if they need life-saving medical uh, attention, or worse, then they will not be able to receive it. And so this is not an anger that just goes away because a court case was decided uh, more months ago than was politically prudent, right? Is that Mm -hmm. sort of the sense that you guys are feeling?
3: Yeah, I I think also sort of the idea that it came too early. I actually think when it came and what we're seeing now, seeing these repercussions of it, you know, I think before this idea of like a post-real reality, Nobody could really wrap their head around it, but we're seeing that you're seeing these these stories of women having to go to states to get life life saving procedures in a number of cases. You're seeing some of this legislation that's that's wild, like just beyond crazy. Um, what's coming out in some of these states, and then I also think the one thing to really look back on, and I think has been such a portent of this issue, is what happened in Kansas. I just ca- I think we can't deny. The turnout around the ballot measure and that in what ended up beyond the ballot measure, measure being a very Republican-dominated um, election. They did very well in the state of Kansas. It wasn't like it suddenly, you know, became this, like, blue bastion of a state. It mm-hmm. stayed red. And I think that really speaks to sentiment around this issue probably more than than a poll that, you know, is a phone call, you know. And
2: Isn't it right that the last five special elections since Roe, since Dobbs, have all gone more for Democrats?
3: I think think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or at least they're overperforming. Right. Overperforming them. Yeah. Exactly. That was what it was.
1: Did you guys notice the uh, latest Times piece where they, you know, they've been. Um, interviewing, Pat Healy is interviewing different uh, voters in different states, and they have a little group, study group, right? It's half Republican, some independents. And they asked the question on abortion, and they said, you know, only one of the people they talked to uh, was happy about the direction that things had gone in the on abortion. And even among the Republicans, they were like, no, we're not into that. We're not into this, like, you know, draconian— under no conditions can you have an abortion scenario. It's definitely like, even within that, and, you know, these are people, some of whom were saying they were going to, they'd vote for Trump again in 2024. But it it was definitely the one issue that they talked to voters about that seems to be unifying. And if that plays out, you know, next week, that may be, you know, the uh, November surprise.
0: Well, This feels like a real nail-biter. Get your popcorn ready. (laughs) I'm truly terrified, uh, but if there's anyone who I would want to be terrified with, it would be the group that is on this podcast. And we are so lucky because hopefully in the weeks to come, we will get to break it all down together and to what degree our demise will be coming for us. And, And so we're just so grateful for your perspective, for your um, biting your nails alongside of us, and we will continue to roll through it together. And in the meantime, we get to have this fantastic interview with Julia Borson as the sort of silver lining to whatever storm may come Mm -hmm. our way.
1: Let's hope women lead the way next week, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, in the voting booths.
3: Mm-hmm. And welcome, Molly. I'm so excited to, to have you on the team. Oh, We're virtual right now, but I was excited for this. It's fun.
2: <laughs> oh, it's great. It's fantastic. I'm super honored to be here.
0: I am so excited to be here with a very special guest. I'm here with Julia Borstein, CNBC's own and author of a new fantastic book, When Women Lead. It is absolutely fantastic. I was saying to Julia before we started recording, um, I devoured it yesterday, and it's just spectacular. I had really high hopes for it, and it exceeded all of my high hopes. So thank you for coming by, Julia.
4: Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I
0: loved it. Okay, for a million reasons, I loved it this topic of women leaders in 2022 is something that I have thought a ton about, both as a woman who has interviewed a ton of female founders and executives and CEOs. I wrote a story this summer about Audrey Gelman, who is a very uh, lightning rod of a female leader. And it led me down a rabbit hole of talking to a lot of female executives and talking about Uh, female founders a lot. So this is something that really uh, I've been thinking about a lot, and you just wrote the masterclass in it. The book goes through so many different case studies, so many different business examples, so many different phenomenal women. And then you're also weaving that in with data. And it's just such a compelling read, uh, both for people who are interested in what it is like to run a company as a woman about how women's leadership styles different it is instructive, but also super interesting. And I I need to know how you decided to do this and what the process of, of executing something like this is.
4: Oh, thank you so much, Emily. It means so much to me. I so admire your work. So to hear that it resonated with you it just is thrilling. So... I always wanted to write a book. I started off as a as a writer for Fortune magazine, and I loved doing long form magazine articles. So sort of writing a book was always a dream, but I knew I would have to find a project that was so important to me that I could do it in addition to my day job. I'm a reporter at CNBC. I've been there for 16 years, and I cover media and tech companies. And sort of ha- the fantasy of writing a book was out there in the back of my mind. But when I realized this was the topic, I knew I had to do this. And and, and the, I came to this idea of trying to dig into the advantages of female leadership because I've interviewed literally thousands of CEOs in my 20-plus years as a business reporter. And I feel very privileged to have seen some of the best leaders in the world and get to talk to them about how they make decisions, but also have interviewed plenty of companies and leaders that have flamed out and have gone out of business. And through that process, as I was I was getting my own masterclass in leadership, I was coming across these female founders and female female CEOs. And at first, they were in a teeny tiny minority when I started out doing this over 20 years ago. Over time, particularly over the past five years, I started noticing more and more women in business. But I also noticed that they were really approaching problems and thinking about things differently. And they didn't have the same approaches to... to growing their companies. They didn't have the same approaches to quarterly results. They just had a whole nother take on things. And I was really drawn to them. And I was particularly curious about them because the statistics of the chances of succeeding as a woman in business are bananas. (laughs) Like, I don't know what other word to use for it. But right now, 8.5% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women. That is an all-time high. The numbers have been much, much smaller historically. That is not anything to celebrate. The numbers are crazy. And then if you look at the tech world, tech, which is such a nexus of power and has shaped so much about the way we live, there in the venture capital business, last year, $330 billion of VC dollars were deployed. 2% of those went to female founders. Which I believe is
0: down from the year earlier.
4: It is down. So over the prior decade, an average of about 3% of venture capital dollars went to female founded companies. That declined to 2% in 2021. So the numbers were crazy, but yet I was meeting these women and thinking they're so fascinating. They've survived despite the odds. And if I could figure out how they managed to lead and create these awesome companies, despite these crazy odds against them, then they would have takeaways that would be valuable for me and for everyone else who wanted to succeed in the business world. And so I sort of use this lens of the people who have succeeded despite the craziest odds as a way to get into this deeper storytelling about what some of the advantages are of female leadership that we do not traditionally talk about. Um, And so I started off interviewing women and starting with VCs and asking them which, which companies they thought were most interesting and I, I, it was like a daisy chain. One led to another, led to another, and I ended up interviewing about 120 people, um, all on Zo- mostly on Zoom. I would say 90% of which were on Zoom during the pandemic. And the great thing was that everyone was at home. Everyone said yes because they had nothing else to do, and I got to talk to all these amazing people, which was so life changing and inspiring. Just to have that experience of talking to these phenomenal people, and then from there, I was like, okay, I got to understand why their approaches are working, why they're succeeding when I would have given up (laughs) long before them. So I started digging into this research to sort of create a framework and understand um, why they were so successful. And for me, it was this this fabulous process of discovery, but also self-discovery and really changing the way I think about myself um, in the workplace as a leader. And I think, and I think I see all my friends differently as leaders now because I've had these models, these new models of what real leaders can look like.
0: Okay. I want to talk to you about these models and about the takeaways because they're fascinating to me. But I have to ask you, uh, as someone who interviews these sorts of people all the time, I find executives in general, very difficult interviews and I find actually some of the female founders that I've interviewed to be some of the more difficult interviews because they're very guarded uh, and they've had to be. And this is a result of their experience um, and those odds that you were talking about of being just so singular in a very small group of people who are able to succeed. And so sometimes talking about themselves and their own success is, is even trickier and there really are some walls up around that. Did you have that experience? Is that, am I singular in this experience? No,
4: I think you're right. I think I think a lot of these women are guarded and for very good reason. There's very good reason for them to be guarded. They've of seen so many examples of women being targeted for reasons that sometimes don't entirely make sense. Um, I do think that the timing of my interviews was incredibly lucky in that everyone was at home and really had a moment to stop and reflect on what was going on in their lives, and their businesses, what their priorities were, what they wanted to be different for the next generation, how maybe they wanted to help other people not to have as many challenges as they did. So I think there was like this this like pause that created this reflection. But I also think that I had to explain to people why I wanted to write this book. And this book was not a takedown book. This is a book about trying to understand how people lead and succeed. And there were some people who didn't want me to tell their stories. And that was a different conversation. Some people were like, I want to write my own biography someday. It's not for you to tell. It's for me to own. And I was like, I get that. I'm not that person. I'm not going to convince. But there were some people that I had to explain like why I was going about this project and how there isn't a book like this that tells the stories of successful female leaders. And I wanted to include an incredibly diverse assortment of people in there. And there were some startup founders that were like, "Why would you include me with these women who've led companies to IPOs? I'm just a little company. I'm in my my series A, like I've barely raised any money. Like, why would you include me with them? That just doesn't make sense. And I'd have to explain, like we need to have the biggest picture possible. So, you know, I think there was a lot of conversations in there and a lot of building of trust, which, Luckily, everyone feels like I lived up to my end of the bargain and being fair and honest with their stories. And it was interesting because talking to people in those moments of vulnerability during the pandemic, there were a couple of times when later I followed up asking follow-up questions or, you know, fact-checking things. And there were two of the women in particular who were like, wow, I cannot believe I went that personal with you. I can't believe I shared that story. This is about my childhood, my youth, you know, my parents getting divorced, like all of this stuff that was so personal but it actually fit into this larger narrative. And I think they were almost shocked at their own intimacy in these conversations. But it was so, I mean, I can't imagine a better way to spend the pandemic than being inspired by game-changing women. It was, for me, it was it was wonderful.
0: It's fascinating. And I think the fact that you are so explicit about your intentions uh, is really important because a lot of the time you don't see a ton of press about female founders that isn't like completely, glowing or takedown. And I think there there hasn't been a something that's really just been in between where um it's not trying to build someone up to make them this sort of mythological creature or tear someone down and sort of ruin their business and their lives. Yeah. It,
4: and look and I but look I I I say in the book like I was worried that some of these women would fail or be canceled before sure. the book came out because there's that weird lag between when you finish the book and when it comes out but you know m- my goal was to tell their stories and a lot of these women had things that had been failures and then they turned out to be success or they were successful and then times got tough as like the market a lot of these companies are having a much harder time now but um, but to really focus in on how these women do have traits, whatever's happening with their companies in this very moment, they and their companies have traits that I think are really valuable for everyone. But, yeah, it was really interesting trying to sort of crack the nut of what it is that makes these people click or – Oh, you know, there. I think about Katrina Lake, who was described as a talent magnet. Like all these people were like, she's a talent magnet. I was like, is that a characteristic that you can like bottle? Like, can we replicate that? Like, what does that even mean? In trying to like get to the bottom of what that is, and at the end of the day, it was just that she was really humble when she was hiring people, she was like, come be my partner. I don't know anything about algorithms, so she could hire the VP of algorithms from Netflix. But to me, there are these, I like these very interesting ideas around. What makes someone a compelling leader? And then sometimes if you unpack them, it's something very simple, like admitting that you don't know about algorithms to hire the best person in algorithms in the country. So I think um, it was sort of getting into these layers and trying to unpack these sort of assumptions that we all make, including myself, about leaders. It was fascinating.
0: Okay, so talk me talk me through some of these traits. And, and as you went layer by layer and person by person, what are the things that kept coming up as someone who was able to succeed despite the odds against them?
4: Yes, so I would say, you know, there's this archetype of leadership in in the business world that you know as well as I do. It's a you know sort of hierarchical, top-down leadership approach, guy in the corner office wearing a suit, making decisions, and delegating to other people, right? That's the stereotype. And I've seen it on TV, I've seen I've seen people try to like step into that stereotype so they could be more successful. But what I saw in in these hundred-plus women I interviewed that it really, success has nothing to do with the characteristics of that stereotype. And I think a lot of this comes down to sort of where we are right now in our economy and our world, where the pandemic laid bare a lot of things that are fundamentally important. And these women, women have a tendency to lead with those traits. So for instance, like empathy, Women rank a lot higher on empathy tests. You can test your own empathy on my website, juliaborston.com. There's like a a really fascinating like little web test where it can see how well you can gauge someone else's emotion. And so like women rank higher on empathy, that's essential for connecting with employees and customers and all of these things. Women are more likely to lead with vulnerability that invites collaboration um, and, and and sort of a humility about what you don't know. Women are more likely to have humility and, you know, that ties into a great growth mindset of like, I don't know this, but I will try to learn it. Um, obviously, there's been so much about how growth mindsets are essential, but it's not just like when you're starting off in your career, you always want to believe you could keep on learning. And then the key one that seems so obvious to me but essential is this idea that women lead with a a more communal approach. So they're more likely to pull on perspectives from across an organization instead of making a decision alone. Um, And this idea also of divergent thinking, like the importance of pulling on threads that are not core to the, you know, just rushing towards the decision and taking a little bit more time, that's something women are also more likely to do. So I... I mean, I started off the book just thinking I was going to tell these stories, but as these characteristics started coming up more and more, and I started like grouping them on giant poster boards around my house, it became clear that there were these themes. And then I found the research that really backed that up. Okay.
0: I'm going to ask maybe what is a silly question. It is not surprising to me that women are more empathetic leaders, that they are more willing to be vulnerable, uh, that they're humbler, uh, that they are more um, community minded than male leaders. And yet, male leaders have dominated and succeeded for since the dawn of time. Yeah. How do we know that those traits that women possess are traits that people want to see in the workplace or that that allow them to succeed?
4: So th- what's interesting is there's actually research around times of crisis that when times are tough, when a company's in crisis or the world is in crisis like during the pandemic, employees would rather have female leaders. And female leaders outperform. Not only do they outperform in times of crisis, but they actually outperform on average. So the statistics would indicate that people should be having a lot more female leaders, whether at startups or at public companies. Well, you saw
0: that. You have a fantastic statistic in your book about uh, nations led by women in the pandemic and how they fared compared to nations led by men, right?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, and and this is true, by the way, whether you're you're talking about nations or states in the U.S. or startups or boards or CFOs or CEOs or the C-suite, companies and organizations with diversity simply perform better. And there are so many different studies in the book that if you don't like one of them or take issue with one of them, you'll find many, many others to choose from. But But that's right, during the pandemic, countries led by women had lower deaths in the first year of the pandemic. Um, than very similar countries led by men. So they compared countries based on size and um, the population, et cetera. States led by women that had the very same policies as similar states led by men had lower deaths in the first year of the pandemic. So there are all these interesting studies showing that not only are those countries reflecting a country that cares more about health and um, and, like, long-term care and things like taking care of of childcare and kids, but you also have the fact that women are communicating differently about their decision-making. So if a woman is more likely to say, we're coming to this decision about our policies, about mask wearing or whatever it is, because I'm relying on the data. She's not taking credit for it herself. She's saying there are these scientists and we're deferring to them, we're following their lead people are going to be more have more sort of credibility or believe she has more credibility because she's not saying, I'm making this decision. And she's communicating it with more empathy. She's saying, this is tough. I'm really sorry we have to do this. It's tough for me too. But that empathy and vulnerability makes people more likely to try to follow her lead. So I think that there are these interesting things where when you see it play out in action, it makes a lot of sense. But then even looking back at like the financial crisis, which gives us a great case study, If you look at regional banks, really easy to compare to each other. The regional banks during the financial crisis of 08-09, they outperformed the male-led banks. The female-led banks outperformed the male-led banks. And the researchers tried to dig into why, and they came to believe that it was because the female-led banks had been less risk-taking to begin with. So there's so many different factors at play here. But the reality is, is that especially in times of crisis, you want a woman in a leadership role. And I think actually that the characteristics that women are more likely to have, the strategies that they take, that's what everyone needs to be doing right now, male and female. And I am hopeful that in these crazy economic times that we're living in now, so much uncertainty, both men and women are understanding like, this is what we need in, in, at the head of the company. This is how we need to be thinking differently. And I was just talking to a, an executive coach, a male executive coach who coaches a lot of male CEOs, very senior. And he was he he read my book and he loved it. But he said that a lot of men had been coming to him, his male clients, and saying, hey, this vulnerability thing, like can you show me how to be vulnerable? Like oh Or I know empathetic empathy is important. We're struggling with talent retention. Like help me be empathetic. And for him, he thought it was kind of funny that I was, you know, that like now everyone's getting on board. So from his perspective, everyone's getting on board. I think it'll be a long time before we actually see leaders really leading with these more traditionally female characteristics, but I'm hopeful that people are getting it. Oh, that
0: gives me so much hope. I feel like uh, all men need to go to therapy and all male executives need to go to an executive coach like that. And and read my book. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, uh, that goes without saying. There's something I've been toying with since I wrote this story this summer and since I spent a lot of time thinking about the wing – you you gave the statistic about 2% of venture funding going to female companies and i feel like at least in that period of mid 2010s when you saw a lot of the quote unquote girl bosses raising money in order to raise that money which so so few of which was going to female founders i feel like a lot of them leaned into having mission driven companies and yeah. Because they had mission-driven companies, they had people who were very mission-oriented working for them, uh, who were perhaps idealistic. They were held to a much higher standard. Rather than saying, I just want to make money, they were saying, I want to change the world and do right by the world. And then when they were actually just a capitalist enterprise, that's when they ran into a lot of trouble. And so I'm curious if any of that sort of vicious cycle of leaning into a mission in order to get funding and then being held to a higher standard because you leaned into a mission, but you really just wanted to raise money. If that sort of came up in your conversations at all.
4: Well, it's interesting because I would actually take a more positive, I, I'll flip that and, Please. and take a positive take on it. So interestingly, because there's this expectation that women are supposed to be warm and this this stereotype that women have to be warm. If they are not warm, they're penalized. So if you just have a for-profit driven company, you're going to sell widgets and you're going to make a ton of money, you're penalized by investors, you're penalized by employees, meaning like you're judged more harshly. But women who have a purpose to their company, in addition to making profit, so they're not doing nonprofits, but they are saying, I'm going to make money and we're going to also help the environment that actually eliminates bias against them. Mm. So there's an interesting study in the book about how that basically having like, you know, investors or looking at a hypothetical company would rather invest in the male company than the female company, even if they're totally identical on paper. But if you make it a purpose-driven company, they would invest in the male and female-led company at equal numbers because they're like, oh, purpose-driven checks the nurturing warmth box for the women so they're more comfortable and seeing women in that way. Um, so I do think actually having a purpose-driven company is a real advantage for women, and it becomes—there is there is added incentive for women to lean into that because they need that to neutralize the bias. On the other side, there is an interesting study about ethics and, and gender, and it found that women are more ethical than men in their decision-making in the workplace, But they are expected to be more ethical than they are. Women are held to a very, very high standard, higher than men, when it comes to ethics in the workplace. And so, like, the double standards are rampant. But to me, this like expectation of like added morality complicates things further. So, on one hand, women have to have a purpose so they can eliminate the bias around warmth. And on the other hand, if they don't meet a certain ethical standard, they're judged more harshly than men would be. So I don't know if that was more optimistic or just sort of unpacks it in a different way.
0: As you were reporting this, was there a characteristic or trait that surprised you that you didn't expect? I mean, some of the stuff is so helpful to hear clearly laid out the way you laid it out, but... It's not shocking that these traits exist in female leaders. Is there something that that even for you made you say, huh, I guess that's interesting, that's different?
4: Um, I was really struck by the stuff on gratitude. And it never occurred to me that gratitude had anything with leadership. Gratitude was something you felt about your family or your friends or about to be privileged to live in this world, whatever it is. I did not connect gratitude with leadership. And there were a couple of CEO interviews I did back-to-back where these women kept on talking about how grateful they were, and how one woman, uh, Julia Collins, who runs a company called Planet Forward, I was like, "Tell me, like, how you do this? Like, like, what's your day like? How do you spend your time?" And she talked about starting every day with a gratitude, like, like practicing gratitude. I was like, "What does that even mean?" She's like, I "Basically, say a gratitude prayer, like, how what I feel grateful for." And she's like, "One thing I feel grateful for is the opportunity." to take on global warming with my company and be really ambitious. And also think about like the long-term thing that I'm I'm trying to solve for. So then I went back to my transcripts and I searched them using lovely tech tools for references to gratitude and blessed and lucky. And it was everywhere. And like every different version of that phrase was like throughout the transcripts. So I was like, there's something here. And it's not just that women are more likely to be like, I'm so happy to be here, but there was something deeper than that. Um, and and a lot of the women were saying, "I'm I'm grateful to have this opportunity to solve this problem. Like I'm grateful that I've had this combination of experiences that gives me insight on how to do this thing that no one's done before." Well, it's Talking not a given. Like,
0: yeah, it's not a given for women. They're not entitled it's not to it. Yeah, and and
4: they're not and they're not blind to it. But also this understanding that fixing problems can be like a gift for everyone. But um, what was most surprising to me was this research finding that grat- practicing gratitude. Um, enables more long-term planning rather than short-term planning. And people would rather go for a longer-term payout rather than an immediate short-term lesser payout if they practice gratitude. And it's different than like saying something you're happy about. Gratitude is a very specific thing. And women are more comfortable feeling gratitude than men are. I thought it was interesting that this one study said that men, if they feel gratitude, they're like, oh, do I owe someone something? Does this mean I'm I'm, like not even? I need to pay someone back. So that's why I was so, I just thought this was so interesting, this idea that women are more comfortable with gratitude. Gratitude enables more long-term thinking. All of these things are like long-term thinking is so valuable. And I think about the challenges that we're facing now. It's like, you got to get through the next three months, but you also have to figure out like, what is the long game? And that was one that I never would have ever anticipated. And I, I think about that a lot now.
0: Oh, that makes me like, it gives, gives me chills. It makes me want to like read this as a bedtime story for my one-year-old every (laughs) night because it's just such valuable information for, I, I wish this existed 20 years ago when, when I needed to see that, that there was a path and that there are certain things that we should follow and emulate. And I'm so grateful. I'm going to practice my own gratitude for you writing this and for sharing these stories and for giving a roadmap. I will absolutely save this for my daughter when she's old enough to actually absorb it. I'm so grateful for you coming by and talking us through all of this today.
4: Thank you so much, Emily. I'm so grateful for you for having a gratitude (laughs) love fest right now. Thank you. It It means a lot to me.